Now let's direct our attention to the Word of God. Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. You should be beginning to be familiar with this passage by now. This is the Sermon on the Mount we're looking at this year and the Beatitudes in particular of these uh, days here in the spring. Hear now the Word of God, Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Implicit in each of these beatitudes or these blessings are the things that follow. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's that blessing. They have a claim to the kingdom of God. And as we've mentioned before, each time that these beatitudes are for God's people. They are for those who have heard the call of the gospel and have trusted in Christ, have with faith moved toward him, and now he dwells in them and they and he. There is, is the kind of um, fellowship and enjoyment that you have of the good things of God, and you begin to see things in your life bearing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and the others have the same kind of implicit blessing, the felicity, the happiness, the well-being. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, as we saw last week. And then today, we look at this verse that says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is to the regenerate, this is to the believer, this is to the one who is longing for the Lord, the presence of the Lord, the fellowship of the Lord, the favor of the Lord, the blessing that the Lord has, the salvation of the Lord, the redemption that's in him. In other words, this is for the person who has a longing, a desire, a hunger, for the things of God. And we'll enumerate broad categories of those things in just a moment, but still by way of introduction, let's just continue to think about this particular beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Obviously, we're dealing with um, a metaphor. We're dealing with a, uh, a motif, but it's one that is most basic, most basic, to human existence. 
We know what it is to be hungry. Do we know what it is to be starved to death in any real sense? We know what it is to be thirsty, but do we know what it is to thirst knowing that unless we get some measure but a drop of water, we perish? And that's the soul of the believer. The soul of the believer has an unsatiated, unsatisfied portion where he just must have God. He just must. Can't live another minute. Will not draw another breath until we have the Lord. And we know that we know that we are His, He is ours. We have moments like that, don't we? I believe everyone in this room who's a true believer can point to a time, if not more, when, when they felt that they were absolutely parched, they were absolutely famished for spiritual things, growing weary of that which is superficial, growing weary of that which is man-made, growing weary of religion, tired of tradition, not being sustained at all by denominationalism and all the things that stand large before our eyes but do not really come and meet the needs of our soul. Have you had a moment like that? I don't need a show of hands, but I may need a nod of heads have you had a moment like that or more? Or do you live in that state even better? Because if I don't get a little bit of a nod of a head, I'll know I'm just preaching to dry bones this morning. <laughs> the only comfort I take is the Lord told Ezekiel to speak to the dry bones. And so I'll do at least that much. We'll see if the Spirit's in the speech, but we'll, we'll speak to the dry bones. But I, I take it most of us are there. There may be some are not, and if you're not, this is a good moment to recognize your paucity, your poverty of spirit, and to grieve over your sin. And, and, and if you don't have God this way in your life, you are, let, let's use a tender term, you're lost. You're a lost sheep. You need to hear the shepherd's voice. You need to come to the fold. He will draw you. He will lead you. He will sustain you. In fact, in the case of some of us, He'll pick us up and take us there because we can't go ourselves. We're too far gone as far as we think. We've walked away from the Lord. Or maybe we've never known the Lord. Maybe we've never thought about the Lord. There may be a few of us here like that. Listen to the way the psalmist, and I know you all know the life of King David and all that David went through as we read about it in the books of Samuel. And we know what his heart was like. And we know how David felt in his exaltation and his worship of the Lord, his zeal for the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a sinner saved by grace, by the finished work of Christ, which he refers to often, lifting up the name of the Lord. Well, this psalm is not written by David. <laughs> this psalm is written by the choristers, some of the Levites whose job it was to lead the people in worship. 
And so as they would come to the house of the Lord, he talks about going into the sanctuary. As they would come to the house of the Lord, they would come with joy. They would come with expectation, but they would come hungry. They would come thirsty. Anytime this hunger and thirst is used in the scripture, we immediately go to the motifs in the scripture that talk about what Christ does to satisfy. God's people are hungry. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the manna set down from heaven. God's people are thirsty. He is the water of life. He is the river flowing of everlasting life. And so God's people come and here's their condition as they come before the Lord. And I would like to encourage you to today in this little devotional this morning to talk, to think in your own heart about where you are. I doubt if I'll say anything that you don't already know. Probably seldom do that anyway, but, but, but something that is, is, is going to be stirred in your heart. I'm going to do what the Apostle Peter calls stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Remind you of the condition of your soul and encourage you to recognize that, that thirst and that hunger. If you have it not, ask yourself why not? The dry bones, the dead people don't thirst. It's only those who are alive and are seeking vitality and sustain their vitality and their life that hunger and thirst. Listen to the words from the psalmist. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We have no life spiritually at all without God himself bestowing it upon us. Just as God in creation breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul, so it is that God breathes into the sinner, the spirit of God who regenerates and brings, vivifies, brings to life. And Jesus said, except you be born of the spirit. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so we're talking to citizens of the kingdom in this series, aren't we? Are we talking to you? Does you, your soul long for God? Not just some notion of a higher being, not some greater power, not even necessarily some mysterious entity that we believe is the genesis or the creator of all things, although that's all true. What we're really talking about desiring in our hearts is the living God, the living and the true God. God that is living in that he created, but he also providentially controls and administers and leads and directs, decrees and accomplishes all things. But then this living God who extended life beyond creation and providence and sovereignty over, but he redeems, he saves, He's a God of mercy and compassion, and he draws us to himself. It's the living God. It's the active God. It's the true God is the one that our soul pants for. The psalmist in a different place, a few chapters over. This is the psalm of David. Hear David's words. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh 
faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you are upon when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. In order for your soul to cling to the Lord and for his right hand to uphold you, you've got to be pretty close. I like the expression that was used in my childhood as I would listen to teachers and preachers. They would talk about being far from God. They would talk about being near to God. You'd hear some of those old time preachers talk about straying and running and leaving God. And then you'd hear them talk about coming back to God. Where are you in that continuum, in that process? Do you find yourself far from God where you couldn't grasp him if you wanted to? He's nowhere near you. Or are you close to God where his right hand reaches and upholds you and strengthens you and gives you what you need from day to day? It's a moment of reflection. And as I promised, let me just put a few of these things to a little bit of perspective before we're done here. It said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's an interesting term. Because righteousness is a word that is used in both testaments many, many times. If you get out your, your tools, your dictionaries, and look at uh, zadik, the old Hebrew word, or diakos, the Hebrew word, I mean the Greek word, you, you will see over and over and over they're used in many contexts. And let me summarize, not exhaustively, but just summarize with you. This is what you're hungering and thirsting. It means in at least this sense that you are hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God over all the earth. God reigns over all the earth in righteousness. As the ancient patriarch said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? It's a forensic term. It's a legal term. And it has to do with setting in order and things being right before God. The creation being right before God. It was that way in the start. He said it's good. It is shaped and formed and filled. And then when he created man, he shaped and formed him from the dust of the ground and filled him with the breath of life. And the same thing happens in the spiritual life. We are shaped and molded into conformity to Christ in the image of Christ. And we're filled with his spirit, the breath of regeneration and enlivenment comes into our souls. And when that happens, everything changes. Just like all the order of old creation, the original creation, we can try to understand a little bit about it. There's a new creation 
we need to understand a little bit about him. Christ, when he came out of that grave, was the firstborn of a new humanity. That's what the resurrection was. He was raised by the Spirit of God, just like the Spirit of God was in the, when Adam, the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, and he became the first citizen, the firstborn, the first brother, the file leader, the forerunner of those that believe in him and that have faith. And these are the inhabitants, the citizens, the roll call population of the new heaven and the new earth are those that are new creatures in Christ. And if you've not been born again, if you're not regenerated by God's Spirit, you don't have a chance of, a, of hungering and thirsting after any kind of righteousness. In fact, the best you'll do is to concoct from somewhere, from your mother's Bible or your childhood preacher's mouth or from your peer group, or from the government, or from your school teachers, your professors, you'll concoct some ethical standard, and you'll live up to it, because it'll be low enough, you'll probably be able to reach it. That's your self-righteousness. That right there is filthy rags in the sight of God. That won't get it. But if you've been born of the Spirit of God, if you've called upon Him for salvation, and He has saved you, regenerated you. All things have become new. Old things have passed away. It's amazing how new the new life is. It's as vital and dynamic as new wine in old wineskins. It just is going to not work unless you are born of the Spirit of God. The righteousness of God over all the earth is God's righteous standards. God's expectation for all humanity. I don't care if you're a believer or not, you're God's creature and God expects you to live according to certain standards and He's written that law in your heart. And you know deep down what you should do in terms of right and wrong in a general sense. And you haven't even lived up to that. You failed at that point. You don't hunger and thirst after righteousness. In fact, you are sickened, offended at the point of the particulars of God's righteousness. Righteousness can also be the righteousness of God in the gospel. Paul tells us in Romans that the, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. And then he spends several chapters delineating to us the gospel, the good news, that even though we're in a wretched condition of enthrallment to sin and to Satan, we are under condemnation already. We're born in sin. We're on our way to an eternal torment that God in his mercy loved us but he didn't love us and stop right there. And we all get into heaven because of the love of God. No, it was focused like a laser beam in the person of Christ. And there is the love of God that saves us, that reaches us, that finds us, that brings us to him. There is this seeking 
drawing love, but it's in Christ. And unless you come to Christ, you have no part in it. It's not God's still love, but his love is in a singular pathway, one door, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Life. The bread of life, the water of life. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to speak about the love of God, you've got to say one word, Christ. And Christ is unto us, Paul tells us, our righteousness. We are totally unrighteous. He is completely and fully righteous. And there's a great exchange. God regards us as righteous. He accounts us as righteous because he has imputed the righteousness of Christ to us. God's keeping the records. He's got the books. He's got the account. And what column does he have? And what does he say in the, in, in, in the margin? He lets us know this person is an unrighteous, condemned sinner. But Christ died for him. Christ died for her. So I regard them in Christ and as such righteous. Not only the rights of God over all the earth, God's the righteousness of God in the gospel, the righteousness of God in Christ, but let's speak finally of the righteousness of God in the believer. We have been accounted righteous, but the Bible says that we are to pursue righteousness, righteousness, rightness. And by the way, there's a stock standard for this righteousness. I sure do hate to mention it because some people just hate hearing this sort of thing, but it's the law of God. It's the law of God in all the commandments, not just the Ten Commandments, but in all of them and in all their fullness. And we're going to talk a little more about the meaning of some of those commandments a little later on in the Sermon on the Mount. But there is a righteous standard by which we are to live. And let me just tell you, if you don't have the Spirit of God, if you're not a new creature in Christ, if you're not alive in Christ, if you're not hungering and thirsting after this righteousness, you won't even get close. God expects us to pursue righteousness in our lives. Just like we need the Spirit of God to regenerate us, we need the Spirit of God to enable us, to quicken and, and empower us to live according to this righteous standard, the righteous standard of God's law. God's law is wonderful, beautiful, absolutely profound in its life-giving Everything in the commandments tries to keep us away from the things that lead to death, to corruption, to destruction. Every prohibition is to keep us from falling away from the path and going down the broad road to destruction. Everything in the code of God's commandments is designed to give us life and health 
and wisdom that we might have life and have it abundant. And then finally, I have to say the word satisfied uh, is translated in the old, old uh, translations fill, but in ours satisfied as it is in almost all of the newer English trans by newer, I mean from the 1800s uh, forward, uh, newer translations that um, they say satisfied. And that's exactly what it is. There is a satisfaction. There is a, a fulfillment and a filling in the soul. And that's the implicit blessing. We talk about the blessing, inheriting the earth, being called the sons of God, entering the kingdom of God, all of the uh, being comforted, all of these things that are blessings. This is the blessing. It's that soul satisfaction with God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's that soul satisfaction. A spiritual person craves that. Jesus himself knew there was a craving deep in the soul of, of us when he stood up on the great day of the feast and cried out, Ho! Whoever thirst, come unto me and drink freely of the water of life. 